As you heard Ellis mention tomorrow, uh, I and about 52 of my closest friends will head off for Israel. And uh, obviously that's a good thing. It's a good news, bad news deal. Uh, the good news is that next Sunday we will be worshiping in Bethlehem together. Uh, the bad news is that the uh, Super Bowl is next Sunday. And uh, I'm not sure where a sports bar can be found in, in, in Bethlehem. Um, but there's a, there's a bright side to it. My daughter, who is going to seminary in, in Massachusetts, in the Boston area, actually has made some connections there. She's still a diehard uh, Seahawks fan, but uh, as kind of a consolation prize, she managed to score uh, a, a football from uh, the Patriots as a, as a souvenir. So, um, <laughs> so... It's even signed here by, uh, let's see, Bill, win at all costs, Billichek, and, uh, and, yeah, Tom, big fat cheater, Brady, um, so, I am enjoying the buzz that I'm hearing about our 90-day adventure, our 90-day challenge together. Uh, We continue to hand out journals, and you continue to make disciples just by walking together through the Gospels. It's been so exciting to hear the reports back of the difference that this is making in your life. It's so simple, isn't it? And yet, as you spend uh, every day one chapter of the gospel every day and write down two two question answers, uh, uh, what do I learn about Jesus and and what do I learn about disciple making, we are growing together as disciples in Christ. So uh, it's it's very, very exciting to uh, hear and feel the buzz in the congregation. So here's our our weekly accountability moment. I want to first first of all, how many have uh, read at least some of the seven chapters from Matthew in the last week? Awesome. How many have read all seven of the chapters from last week? Good. How many of you are lying just to look good? <laughs> well, good for you. I'm, I'm astounded at the, your staying power. This is good. It's a 90-day challenge, not a three-week challenge, so let's keep up at it. But it, this has been, been very, very uh, exciting and, and fun. Um, we are, uh, as you know, we are looking each week... Uh, we are looking at the themes uh, that arise out of the previous seven chapters. Um, one, one guy came to me and said, I'm kind of enjoying coming and just seeing what you're going to figure out how to do with seven chapters of... Uh, and I said, well, join the club. Me too. Um, but we're looking at the uh, disciple-making themes. You know, that's our big focus as a church. What does it mean to be disciples and disciple-makers? And we're looking at the key themes that we learn from Jesus. If you're going to be a disciple maker, you might as well learn from the best, right? And so we're looking at these principles. And do you remember, what was the first theme that comes out of week chapter 1, the first seven chapters? Intentional. Say it. Jesus lived his life on purpose. Jesus made disciples on purpose. He just didn't bump into people and say, hey, maybe you'd be a good disciple. He was, had his head on a swivel, and he was living his life with real intention. And that is what we are called to do. We're called to live our spiritual lives and to grow our spiritual faiths on purpose. Last week, I got an email from a friend. I have a a life group, and we meet together on Friday mornings, but for different reasons, we weren't able to meet this last Friday. So I got an email from a friend who is part of that group. Three years ago, he didn't know Christ. 
So he came to, to our group and he began to listen in on the Bible studies, began to participate, began to pray. He gave his life to Christ and he has been growing as a disciple, but it's all brand new to him. So th- this is um, the email from my brand new Christian friend. He said, everybody have a great weekend and don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open for the opportunity to share the message. I'm spending it with a friend who's been incredulous about my own Christian walk. So I'm going to try my hand at this disciple making with him. Go big or go home is how he ended the email. So isn't that great? That is, that's intentional. Then last Sunday we looked at the second key part of disciple making according to Jesus' way. And which is what? Relational. So it's intentional and relational. And I shared my own journey with you. It was kind of a, a, you know, you went into the confessional booth with your pastor and I was on the confessing end. But I just shared how I sensed that in these these years the Lord has been uh, convicting me of of the call to be the shepherd of the church. Not, not just the rancher who was overseeing the ranch hens, but, but the shepherd of the church who was engaging in the lives of his flock. And I also shared with you my terror at telling you that. Because there are 2,000 of us who are here any given Sunday. And um, I can't be the, the shepherd one-on-one to, you know, to 2,000 people. So it makes me a little bit nervous. But that doesn't mean, though, that... Whatever sheep I'm with, at that moment they get my undivided attention, absolute care and focus and and eye contact. So these are the things that I think the Lord is stirring in me. And hopefully it's going to bleed out because the fact of the matter is the Lord calls every one of us to be relational, to be be shepherds of, of of each other. And so if you catch on to this and if you are being relational and shepherding one another... Pretty soon, there's going to be a, such an atmosphere of love and support and affection here that people will be beating a, a, a path to our church that will be the, the most inviting and warm environment that you'll be able to find anywhere in this community. There's a longing for that deep, not the surface stuff, not just friendliness, but deep relationship. There's a longing for it in our culture. And, and we have a chance to live that out if we're going to be followers of Christ. So that's the second thing we talked about. Bill, Pastor Bill and Jenny were out walking after last Sunday's message. They were taking a walk and they saw a woman coming towards them. As they got closer, she, and just closer and closer, she gets right up to them. She just stops and leans over and she says, relational. And then just kept walking. So, so the word is out. The, the word is out. She's getting the message. I hope all of us are getting the message. So intentional, relational, and this morning's, uh, this morning's theme is on. Flappable. Would you say that? You know me. I got to have these things rhyming. But, but I, I think you'll, you'll get it with me. Unflappable. Unflappable. Part of being a, a disciple maker of Christ is that we are unflappable. And we learn that from Jesus. Jesus knew that disciple making is a long game. It's not short, short-term gains. It is the long game. And frankly, disciple making is not always an up and to the right trajectory. You're going to have slips and falls. There are times when disciples disappoint. There are times of failure and setback and even times of betrayal. But Jesus never got flustered. He got mad and he told them so. That's part of disciple making. But he never got flustered. He knew that he was playing a long game and he was unflappable. I don't know what I thought I was doing when I arranged to do Marjorie Baldwin's memorial service last Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. 
you remember what was happening at last Sunday at 3 o'clock? Even Marjorie's grandsons were saying, what were you thinking? But I do remember that I left, you know, I kind of stayed home watching, watching, watching the game as long as I could. Finally, with nine minutes on the clock, I said, well, I got to go. I got to go. It doesn't start without me, so I got to get there. And, um, and frankly, it wasn't much of a regret. With nine minutes on the clock, the Seahawks were getting killed. We were going to congratulate them on a, on a, on a good game and on a good year, I mean, a good season and look forward to next year. And uh, at least I wasn't going to have to find a, a, a TV in Bethlehem at 1.30 in the morning next Sunday. So I'm halfway through the service. And Paul, our sound guy, who was in, we were in the memorial chapel, he's about, back in the little sound booth there. I'm halfway through the service doing my, ser- my sermon. And suddenly Paul jumps up in the sound booth and goes... <laughs> Can you appreciate the conundrum I found myself in? (laughs) I'm trying to give honor to Marjorie, trying to preach the eulogy, trying to bring the message of Jesus, and Paul's out there going... (laughs) It was pretty exciting, wasn't it? The headline the next morning, this is what it said, remember? Unreal. It was the font they usually reserve for like World War III, but no, unreal. And I don't know how many times I heard people say that was the best football game I've ever seen. I disagree. It was, it was actually the best end to a football game that I have ever seen. As a matter of fact, if you're a Seahawks fan, about 58 minutes of the game was pretty, you know, pretty lousy. It was the worst half of the Seahawks season. It was worst game of Russell Wilson's career, four interceptions. It was the worst game of, of uh, Jermaine Curse's career. All four interceptions were thrown at, at him. It was an awful game with a cr- terrific ending. It was the most spectacular two minutes and nine seconds of regulation play that you'll ever see. And the overtime ended with this redemptive reception by Jermaine Curse, which was, you know, got a Green Bay Packer in his back pocket and he still caught that thing. Even the headline sounded religious. A gift from on high, they called this one. And, uh, <laughs> and the other one was Curse responds to adversity, finds salvation. I mean... If ever there was a game that illustrated the truth of Yogi Berra's adage, it ain't over till it's over, that was the game. But I'll tell you, for the first few, many minutes, it was bleak, wasn't it? When you're reading through the last seven chapters of Matthew together, there must be times when you're saying again and again, this is bleak. As we watch the disciples fumble the ball, trip all over themselves, turn around and run the other direction on the field, you're saying... We have no chance of winning this game. And these knuckleheads are giving Jesus all kinds of reasons to to give up on them. I'd like to look at just two of the many examples that we found in these seven chapters. First of all, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 takes place up in um, what is my favorite area of Israel. It's north of the Sea of Galilee in a region called Caesarea Philippi. 
It's the most beautiful spot up there. And we will be there, I think, four days from now. We will be in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was beautiful back then, but it was also a dark place spiritually because it was dedicated to the worship of the half-man, half-god, Pan. Here's a picture of Pan. And uh, it, was, it was an ugly, uh, gruesome, very sexual uh, rites of, of worship that took place. And to this day, you can see the temple complex where Pan was worshipped with such fervor and, and vigor. Uh, there's a cave to the side uh, that was believed to be the uh, access point from the spiritual world below and into the upper world. In fact, that cave was called the gates of hell. So we, when, when Jesus decides to take the boys up there, and, and here he's got these young, maybe teenage, maybe early 20s, and they're watching all of this uh, stuff taking place in the, in the worship of this half-man, half-god, uh, half-man, half-goat, pagan god. And Jesus, who is the one true God, turns to them finally and said, so who do you say that I am? Here's what they say about this this half goat, half man. Who do you say that I am? And of course, it was Peter's greatest moment, I think. Peter says, why, you are the, what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus brags on Peter. He said, oh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I'm going I'm to build my church on that confession of faith. In fact, I'm going to build a church so strong that not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against this church. This church is going to knock down the very gates of hell. And can't you just see Peter beaming as Jesus is bragging on him and, and proclaiming his, uh, his pride in the answer that Peter has given to him? It doesn't last very long. Turn with me to verse 21. Verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, what? Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> it's so shocking to read it. Um, are there any more audacious words that you'll find in the gospel than, than this sentence? Than this sentence. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Think about that. Try to imagine it in your mind's eye. Peter is on a roll. He's just had the praise of Jesus, the unvarnished praise of Christ, the promise that the church will be built upon the very confession of faith that he has just offered. So he thinks he can do no wrong. And then Jesus starts to, he starts to talk this foolishness about his impending death. How can, that can't be right because we've just talked about how the, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. So, so surely Peter thinks Jesus must be mistaken in this. And so when Jesus starts talking this foolishness, Peter decides to help him out. 
He's going to set him straight. So he comes up and he, and he puts his arm around Jesus and he pulls him to the side because he, he doesn't want to embarrass him in front of the, the rest of the disciples. And then we read, he rebukes Jesus for what he had said. Can you see Jesus flipping Peter's arm off of his shoulder, turning his back on him and saying, get behind me, Satan, because you do not have your mind on the things of God. You have your mind on the things of men. How the mighty have fallen. Talk about a fall from grace. Only moments ago, he was Peter, the rock upon which the church will be built. Now he is Satan, evil incarnate. That is a quick turnaround in a few sentences, isn't it? So for a moment, we see Peter up here and we see this disciple up here going along and then, bam, he hits the ground. And that's not the only time we find it in this last seven chapters. Take one, a look at one more example. Chapter 20. Turn to chapter 20. Verse 17. This, this is another one that it almost embarrasses me to read it. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem... And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. I want you to wrap your head around that one for a moment. Jesus and the disciples are walking towards Jerusalem to what he knows will be his death, his painful death. And in as clear words as as you will find in the gospel, he's telling them what is about to befall him. I will be betrayed. I will be arrested. I will be beaten. I will be flogged. I will be crucified. Yes, I'm going to rise again, but I'm just telling you, this is what we're about to go through. I mean, you would have thought that at the very least it would be a cause for some somber silence, right? Imagine if, if your beloved leader were to tell you that that was what was going to befall him or her. It's an awful thing that they're walking along and hearing these things from the, word, from the mouth of Jesus. Then we read in the very next verse. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor, what is it you want? And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. It's breathtaking in its denseness and its insensitivity and in its callousness. Jesus says, I'm going to be tortured and die. And, and Mrs. Zebedee says, yeah, okay, fine. But could you make my boys your executive vice presidents in your corporation? My son Cooper and I have been doing the 90-day challenge together. It's been so fun to read his comments back and forth every day. Here's what he wrote about this particular passage. He said, It reminds me of the parents at Gig Harbor High that antagonized the coaches constantly to have their kids play. Seeing that always made me sick and upset. 
I'm sure Jesus felt the same way. Again, we are up here dealing with this, the painful reality of why Christ has come and what he is about to endure. And, and, and there's a, a, a holiness to that moment and suddenly, bam, once again, we're back down. We're brought down to earth with these petty jealousies and rivalries and ambitions. And those are just two examples out of this reading. If you paid attention, you saw many more. Jesus feeds 5,000 miraculously earlier on. Now comes time for him to feed 4,000. And the disciples cannot figure out how Jesus might take care of that. Or Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, to something that's called the transfiguration, where the holiness of God descends upon Christ in such power, the glory of God is such power that he's turned bright white. They have this unbelievable experience and reaffirmation of who Jesus is. And then they walk down from the mountain, And the very next thing we find that they cannot heal the son of this man because he says you don't have enough faith. Or how about Palm Sunday which we read about today. The disciples were right there with the crowds who are crying out Hosanna and proclaiming Jesus the Messiah, the long awaited Messiah. And five days later they have all run, they have all turned tail. They have all denied or betrayed and gone to hiding. Here are the twelve disciples that Jesus called, with whom he spent the most time, to whom he revealed the deepest meaning of his teaching, into whom he placed the Holy Spirit and the authority to perform great miracles. And yet again and again and again they stumbled and fell, and even in the end denied him and betrayed him. How tempted might Jesus have been to just throw his hands up in utter despair? How tempted might Jesus have been to just chuck them all and start over? How surprised would you have been if you had been able to listen in on a prayer of Jesus near the end of his ministry that went something like this? Um, Father, you know that plan we had? That plan where I leave earth after three years of ministry and turn everything over to my disciples? That plan where the entire future of your kingdom on earth rests in their hands. Do you have any other plans? Do you have a a backup contingency? Do you have a plan B? But that's not what happened. Jesus was unflappable. He would not be dissuaded. He knew that disciple-making was a long game. Temporary setbacks and failures and disappointments, they did not fluster him. Sometimes it made him mad. Sometimes he called them out on it. That's part of discipling, isn't it? But he never wavered. He never second-guessed. He was unflappable. This is the Father's plan, to raise up disciples, train them, fill them with the Holy Spirit, and send them out into the world to make other disciples. That was his only plan. There is no plan B. It is still his only plan. There is still no plan B. You are plan A. We are Jesus' strategy for reaching the world. And we need to be reminded that there will be bumps along the way and sometimes things will go backwards in our own lives, in our own discipleships, in our own failures, in our own setbacks. And when we begin to pour ourselves in the life of others, those that we care about and have invested in, we're going to watch them stumble and fail and fall. And it would be easy to be disheartened, to lose heart, to throw up our hands and say, forget it, or let me try someone else. 
And Jesus says, don't you do it. Be unflappable, unflagging. Do not give up. We cannot lose heart because of these present circumstances. We have to trust that God, in the end, causes all things to work together for good, even when the right now looks so discouraging. I'll try. I spoke this last week to two different men who long for their sons to return to Christ. Both of them, one with tears, spoke of the the yearning that they have for their boys. That they love so deeply that they would return to the Jesus that they once knew and loved. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but can any of you parents, any of you grandparents relate to that? You can just nod your head if you want to. Isn't it the deepest, most painful yearning of a parent's soul? The longing we have for our children. You have tried to disciple your children. Sometimes you've done well. Other times you haven't done so well. But they are now wandering in a distant land. Like the prodigal father. You must be unflappable. You must believe on God. You must pray for their return. You must look for that return and be ready for it as soon as it comes. Because the final chapter of their lives has not been written. The Proverbs promise that you raise up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Some of them aren't old enough yet. But don't lose heart. You've got to be unflappable in your confidence in what God is doing in them. Thursday, I got a call from my daughter, Rachel. She's studying at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, first year of seminary. She has been invited to serve as the only staff member of a small church in Boston during her seminary. Um, It's actually the church that George Whitfield founded. He is buried under the pulpit. She's preaching in that pulpit today, as a matter of fact. She called me and said, Daddy, I think I might preach on the floor for my first one. I don't know if I want to preach standing on George. (laughs) She was excited about this opportunity as part of her training and then last week, the, the elders made a decision regarding someone else that was very disappointing to her, very disturbing to her, as a matter of fact, and she didn't know what that meant for her as she was going forward with this. And so she called me and wanted, to, wanted her daddy's advice. <laughs> and I, you know, frankly, I'm not sure either. I said, you need to pray about it. You need to seek the counsel of the session. You need to sit down and talk this through. But I will tell you this. The church is full of sinful people. And this won't be the last time the church disappoints you. And you might as well get used to it for the line of work you're going into. But whatever you do, listen to the Lord. Hold your temper. Don't make hasty decisions. And speaking out of personal experience, don't take this out on everyone in your sermon Sunday. So we'll see. But I'm urging her, don't, you've got to be unflappable. Don't let these little setbacks dissuade you. And then this week I met with a young woman. Her marriage is struggling. Some have encouraged her to bail on it. But she loves her husband. She wants to keep her vows. And I had the privilege of sitting there and rooting her on in her best intent. Encouraging her to believe that if they are faithful to each other and if they are both willing to do the right kind of work, that she can hope for a marriage that is more than just surviving. That she can hope in the long game for a marriage that thrives and brings life. 
She needs to not flag. She needs to be unflappable in that hope. I wish our culture encouraged endurance. It does not. Our culture encourages quitting. Our culture encourages quick cynicism and abrupt changes of plans. It encourages chasing after something that seems less difficult and more fun. But the call to discipleship, the call to disciple-making is at times a disappointment. You better know that. You better be ready for that. We will disappoint ourselves and those into whom we poured our lives are going to be disappointing too. Just as the disciples disappointed Jesus. Perhaps for a long time. But he never stopped believing. And we can't either. We must be unflappable. We cannot let it fluster us. We must believe in God's long game that He is at work, that He can be trusted, and in the end, He will have His way.